Welcome to What's the Law Say, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director here at Legal Aid of West Virginia. And in this episode, we will be discussing foreclosure and consumer law with Sarah Brown from Mountain State Justice. As good lawyers, we always start with a disclaimer. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm. We provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring information that is current and relevant. All of the information is current at the time the podcast is published. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia, is provided for informational purposes. While our hosts and our guests are attorneys, this information is legal information. It would not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As noted, I'm Clint Adams, and I have the great honor of being joined by Sarah Brown. Sarah, welcome to the uh, broadcast today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. You work as the executive director at Mountain State Justice. Tell us a little bit about Mountain State Justice. Um, Tell us a little bit about the history, how Mountain State Justice came into being, and um, what kind of work you do there. Mountain State Justice is also a nonprofit legal services firm. We share some of the same origin as Legal Aid of West Virginia. Uh, There have been a history of of many legal services organizations here in the Mountain State uh, that have kind of evolved and and combined and and separated over the years. And Mountain State Justice was founded in 1996 uh, with a specific focus on class actions, impact litigation, consumer rights, fee shifting cases. Um, And we have continued to evolve since 1996, but still have a large consumer practice, as well as other areas where we represent low income West Virginians. So when we lawyers talk about fee shifting cases, we know what that means, but most people that that, that don't have a law degree don't know exactly what you mean by that. So tell us, what do you mean when you say a fee shifting case? There are certain types of claims where the law provides if the person who brings the lawsuit wins, the court can order that the defendant or the party that you sued pay your lawyer. And so a lot of the consumer claims are set up that way because you might have a very small dollar claim and a lot of private lawyers wouldn't want to take that case. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily have the money to pay a lawyer to take that case. But the, the law says these companies violated the law. And so in sort of a way to incentivize lawyers to take those cases, if you bring a case and win, the court orders that creditor or defendant to, to pay your, your lawyer's bills. Uh, so we don't have to charge clients up front. Uh, people don't pay anything to come in and, and see a lawyer. And if we have a case for you, we don't charge anything. But we do say, if we win, you give us permission to go get our fees paid by the, the bank. And, and most clients say, yes, please. You know, we, we'd like sure. to see the bank have to pay for what they did wrong to me. And, and if they can pay you too, then all the better. <laughs> and, and the law does that, as you noted, to encourage lawsuits in cases where they may not uh, normally be brought or in cases where there's a a disparity in the bargaining power in that you have a bank versus, um, you know, if you will, the little guy who just owes some money to Visa. And if it's a couple of thousand dollars, that probably wouldn't warrant uh, a lot of litigation. Um, And this allows the opportunity for you to bring those cases and ensure that you're going to have the opportunity to be reimbursed for that. Correct? Right. A lot of clients say, look, if I had $2,000 to pay a lawyer, I would just pay this bill. <laughs> you know, I would just make this debt go away. Uh, and so, you know, that would let the company get off the hook for maybe what they've done wrong and trying to collect that money from a consumer, from an individual. So these sort of laws say, look, we're going to make the defendant, you know, compensate you and then also pay, pay your lawyer so that you have the ability to bring these claims to enforce the law, to make sure that the law is followed by these companies so they can't get away with it. 
Now you're the executive director at Mountain State Justice. How long have you been there? I've been at Mountain State Justice since 2011. I've uh, practiced law for about 15 years. I was a staff attorney in our consumer practice for the, the bulk of that time, and I became executive director about 18 months ago. And uh, is that have you where, where else have you practiced outside of Mountain State Justice? Before I came to Mountain State Justice, I had my own law practice for about 18 months, and I was also a law clerk. So I had a chance to work for a federal judge, uh, helping the judge to make sure that, that she had all the information she needed to make decisions on cases. Sure. And, um, and in your time in Mountain State Justice, you noted you've worked primarily in the consumer division. What kind of work are you doing um, in that kind of uh, setting? Yeah, so our consumer practice covers a, a whole variety of areas, and and it's something people think maybe sounds sort of technical at first, but we're all consumers, I like to explain. You know, uh, consumer law really covers anybody who purchases a good or a service, anybody who borrows money at all. So my practice has primarily focused on mortgage cases, so people who have a loan on their home, you know, usually used to purchase the home, but sometimes a refinance transaction. So mortgage loan servicing and foreclosure prevention has been my primary focus. But we also have a variety of cases with automobile loans at issue, student loans, credit cards, unsecured debts. Um, consumer law also covers representations made when you purchase goods. You know, if a company says this is a, a product that does a certain thing, there are laws that say if, if that product doesn't actually hold up in that way, you know, you have a way to challenge that company's conduct. So those may be what, what may, we may commonly refer to as like lemon laws or something like that. Is that what we're talking about? Exactly. So in a car context, it's often called the lemon law. If they sell you a car, you know, it needs to, to do what it's supposed to do. And there are certain laws uh, that protect and uh, used car transactions as well. Uh, it's it's got to have an, um, there are implied warranties. You know, if you say I need a car that's reliable to get me back and forth to, to my doctor's appointments, they got to sell you a car that's reliable and can can withstand that much you know mileage or that type of driving, whether or not it has an express warranty from the manufacturer. So, yep, exactly those type of of, um, of laws. There's a, a general law called an unfair, uh, uh, it's called a UDAP in the the legal terms, but unfair uh, debt collection practices. Um, you know that again, companies have to properly tell you, you know, be honest with you. These laws help companies uh, stay honest. So when we talk about the the unauthorized debt, what was it UDAP, you, unauthorized debt something acts practices, practices yeah. acts <laughs> and practices, unauthorized debt acts and practices. What are some of the things that would be unauthorized debt acts and practices? So companies can't harass you. They can't threaten you. They can't misrepresent the status of the debt. You know, they can't tell you that you're going to get sued or you're going to go to jail uh, or they're, you know, going to be able to to garnish wages if that's not, you know, the legal status of the claim. Uh, so they can't make those kind of misrepresentations or threats. Um, they can't call you more than 30 times a week. They can't talk to you more than 10 times a week. They can't call after certain hours. Um, so there's there's sort of those basic protections about debt collection. Um, there's also protections about what gets reported to your credit report. So if a company chooses to tell Experian or TransUnion or Equifax that, that you owe a debt, they've got to, to give an honest accounting of that debt. Uh, and so we we also see laws that protect about credit reporting. So so let's talk about some of those then. Let's say I let's say I owe a, a credit card debt. Let's just take that for an example. And I haven't paid it. I've fallen behind now. You're telling me they can only call me 30 times and only actually talk to me 10 times a week. Um, and that's protected under uh, under what what protects that? Is that West Virginia law? Is that federal law? What are we talking about here? 
There are both. So we have a state consumer protection law, the West Virginia Consumer Credit and Protection Act that sets out those particulars. Uh, our state act does mirror a federal act, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. And there are also uh, telephone protection laws, uh, you know, related to being able to contact you on a cell phone or if you put yourself on a do not call list, you know, making sure that's honored. Those are consumer protection laws as well. So can debt collectors generally call you if you're not on some kind of a do not call list or something like that? Are they allowed to, to call you and say, hey, please pay me? Yeah, they are allowed to call you. They're not allowed to harass you. And the law finds that after a certain number of calls, even if they're being polite, it's harassing. If they call you more than 30 times a week, I think we can all agree on that threshold. Sure. So what defines harassment and what makes that other than just they were asking nicely? Yeah, so it's really up to a judge or a jury and, you know, sort of to say, yeah, I find that to rise to the level of harassing. But, you know, we've had some some people come in with terrible stories of, of you know, talking about sick family members. Are you set to inherit money? And, and you can imagine kind of how that conversation could start to feel real harassing or offensive to people. Uh, but there's not any sort of set language or magic words that have to be used to have it be considered harassing. So how much swearing can can rise to the level of harassing, you know, might depend on exactly the tone or the person hearing it or the jury deciding whether that counts as harassment or not. But um, I think we've probably all had experiences where you feel uh, sort of bullied or harassed by by folks on the phone. And, um, you know, those are the kind of things you could talk to a lawyer about challenging when it hits a certain level of conduct. So in addition to you have the right to not be harassed, what are some other rights that you have? Well, you have the right, you know, like, like we talked about, to have uh, honest information provided about a product that you might be purchasing. Same goes if you're entering into a, a loan transaction. You have the right to know what your interest rate is going to be. You have the right to know what your payment amount is going to be. So there are both federal and state laws that protect uh, and, and require disclosures for you to have the opportunity to review. When you're sitting in a, a, a car dealership getting ready to purchase a car, they've got to hand you a piece of paper and let you look at it and, and say, yes, I agree to this interest rate and this payment, um, you know, rather than have you just sort of initial here and initial here and not know exactly what you're getting into. You've got the right to know what you're entering into before you before you do it. Now, you mentioned car dealerships. Are those the only ones that are going to be implicated here? If I buy a car off of my neighbor, does that involve some of these consumer protections? Your neighbor is not necessarily going to be held to the same law. It's mostly going to apply to businesses or folks who do these transactions in the regular course of business, you know, not just a, a one-off individual. Uh, but it does apply beyond car dealers. So, you know, you can talk about a personal loan. You might walk into a, a Springleaf or a one main branch and, and get a personal loan or a loan secured by some other property that you have and those types of protections uh, in terms of having disclosures made to you uh, and, and misrepresentations, no misrepresentations. They can't lie to you. They can't tell you you're going to get a certain product. And then you that that seems reasonable. Say, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're all glad we have those type of laws. Um, right. And, and, uh, and certainly in the mortgage loan, like uh, when your home is at issue, those same disclosures apply. So if I go in to buy a couch and I'm going to finance it with a 0% interest for 90 days, let's just take one of those, right? These uh, 90 days, same as cash uh, deals that you might see uh, advertised for President's Day or whatever. Um, so I go in, they got to tell me the truth. They got to tell me how much interest it will be after the 90 days, same as cash and what other terms might be impacted. Do, do I understand that correctly? And what else do they have to do for me? That's right. You'd have to know your your payment amount. And, you know, when we're talking to folks who feel somehow wronged about a transaction, we say, you know, what were you told and what was different than what you expected? And that kind of helps us to see, OK, it turns out, you know, maybe you got a statement 
so many months later and the payment was different than what you were told or, you know, the payment came due sooner than you expected. You know, we can look back then and say, were there misrepresentations? Misrepresentations is the legal, the legal sort of way we say, did they lie to you? Did they mislead you in some way? Did they make you think something was going to be the case and it turned out to be different? So that's the sort of um, standard we use to look and see whether there might have been unfairness in that transaction. And sometimes credit cards will do this. I, I know I've run into personal credit cards that will do this, right? You get 12 months, same as cash, but if you don't pay it in the 12 months, then we're going to dock you for interest from the second that you, that you got that. What disclosures are they required to make in relation to those uh, kind of promotional interests that you might see on a store card or something like that? They've got to tell you exactly those terms, you know, what what could trigger a change in the interest rate or, or a payment amount. Now, they may just give it to you in the fine print, you know, and the law does say that if you sign something, you're assumed to have read and understood it. So uh, it doesn't necessarily always help that they put it in some kind of a long contract, uh, but they, they, they can't lie to you about it. They can't tell you expressly that, that um, you know, you're never going to have to pay a, a dime of interest. And then, oh, look, you know, actually in the fine print, it was something different. You know, that could be a misrepresentation or or a fraud on the part of the, the institution that got you into that transaction. Even even as an attorney, I have joked that when I go to, to the pearly gates and they ask me, have you ever told lies? And I say no. And they're going to say, I have read and understood the terms of the agreement, whether it's downloading software, whether it's your credit card, whatever it is, there's always these copious amounts of terms that that none of us really take the time to read or understand, right? I, you know, I downloaded the, an update to the app before we logged on here today, and I read okay. and agreed to all the terms of services. Um, so, so how do they get by with that? I guess let me start there. How do how do they, how can they get by with putting it in fine print so that it's not really understood? Yeah, and and you know, the law just sort of says that if you've if you've signed a contract that you're held to account for it, and and we do sort of it's interesting have come to accept that that's the case, even though you're right, lawyers themselves know we're not we're not reading these huge warranty agreements or uh, or those types of agreements, but. I guess at, at some point you have to to say that if the company's put it out there, you're you're accountable for it. Yeah, you know, and there are certain circumstances where um, the court looks at factors like you know you mentioned being a lawyer. You know, is it somebody who has a, a higher degree of education who could be expected that if we took the time to read it, we would generally understand what happened? Or if somebody did take the time to read it but doesn't understand or doesn't read well or doesn't read or write or doesn't have the sufficient education to comprehend the terms, even if it had been something where they had the time and inclination to read it, the court can consider those types of factors to consider whether someone might have been induced or kind of convinced to enter into a transaction based on what they were told versus you know, somebody who really should have had the time or could have had the inclination or, or understanding to, to sit down and read through all that fine print. So let's take this back to a simple situation. Let's say I, I buy a, a couch at the local furniture store, I, 90 days same as cash, and then I, I don't pay it. I lose my job for whatever reason. I fall behind on the payments and I'm not making the payments. Then they start uh, calling me and they start asking me to pay and then they get increasingly hostile in, in the way that they're calling me. Maybe they're harassing, maybe they're just you know getting frustrated by the fact that I'm not paying. What should I do in that situation where I know I'm behind on the debt? Um, should I just unplug my phone and dodge their calls or should I uh, do something different? Yeah, great question. I think that, you know, it it, um, it depends. Of course, that's the lawyer answer. It's always going to depend. <laughs> always. But, uh, yep. 
Yep. I think it's the kind of thing where if it's getting to the point where it's impacting your, uh, you know, quality of life or your, your mental state, you should feel free to unplug the phone and not answer those calls and certainly not have to, to suffer through that, that kind of harassment. Uh, you also shouldn't feel like you need to sacrifice your well-being to make these payments. You know, we certainly hear from people who've made choices about food and medication and things for their family versus paying some debt that, you know, if it's if it's not your home and it's not the vehicle you're trying to drive to your car or, or take to your place of employment, um, you know, the worst they can do, they can't put you in jail, right? They can't actually come after you in the way sometimes they harass you. You could get sued for the debt. And, and you know, we can talk about that. But, um, you know, there are ways to deal with those debts that, that shouldn't include sacrificing your, your health, your well-being, your family. So, so I would put that out there. I would say folks should not, you know, go to, to great ends to try to pay off this couch, you know, that they no longer have. Maybe it already got repossessed or, or a car that got repossessed. You know, we hear that a lot. Um, your only option isn't to, to just pay them and it's not to, to answer every phone call or, or change your phone number. So you can tell the, the creditor who's calling, don't call me or don't call me at these hours, or don't call me this often, or I'm going to get paid next week, don't call me until then. I mean, you can set those types of parameters. Um, you can then talk to a lawyer and, and figure out, you know, maybe we, I just mentioned there are ways to deal with it. Bankruptcy might be an option for you, or depending on what your source of income is, even if they went to the level of suing you for payment on this, you know, unpaid debt, uh, what could happen is that they could get a, an order from a court saying, yes, furniture company, you're entitled to this $3,000. The way they collect it would be through garnishing. Well, maybe you have the type of income or assets where they really can't garnish you. Uh, or maybe they don't honor your request to stop calling you at certain hours. And now you have what could be called a counterclaim. So they sue you for the debt and you sue back and say, sure, maybe I owed it. But in the meantime, you called me you know, 85 times, and now we're going to walk away even, or now they owe you money. You know, those are the type of, of kind of responses you could make. So uh, it may be that something you want to end up consulting with a lawyer about. You also do have the right to always negotiate a reduced payoff or a payment plan. So some folks say, look, I know I owe this debt and I'll feel okay to pay it, but I've only got, a, you know, 25 extra bucks a month and that's what I'm going to do. And, and they might totally accept that. So, um, you know, I'd say, Rather than burying your head in the sand, there may be some options for you to, to deal with uh, the debt itself, um, you know, legally or, or, well, it's all legal, negotiate a payment plan or uh, by seeing a lawyer and dealing with it through the courts. And Sarah, I want to go back to uh, something that you've said there before, because as a legal aid attorney, we often would get people who didn't pay their rent. They didn't pay their rent because they fed the wolf that was howling at the door, which was a creditor that, that really had much fewer options than their landlord who has an option to file an eviction action very quickly. So as you're looking through it, when you find yourself in these situations, I would encourage anyone, make sure the first thing you're protecting is your four, four walls, your food, your basic human necessities. And then if there's anything left, you figure out what that amount is and you send them 15 or $20 a month um, to, to the debt collectors. Just, you know, that's just something I just want to drive home because we see that in our work as well, where people have made payments to debt collectors that should have been further back in the line. Also, I wanted to note we did a uh, bankruptcy podcast as well. So if you think you're in that position, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that about some of the options that may be available for you in bankruptcy as well. Um, so let's say bankruptcy isn't an option. You talked about a counterclaim. So if they start calling me and harassing me, do I just say, hey, look, I don't owe you any money because you've been calling and harassing me. What's that process look like? So you always have the right to dispute a debt or ask for proof that you owe it. 
So even before we get to that counterclaim stage or, or saying, don't call me, if, if a company, because a lot of these also, I'll say creditors, the debts change hands, right? So maybe you thought you had a, a visa. Maybe it was a Walmart visa card. And then all of a sudden you start getting letters from U.S. Bank. And you're like, I've never owed U.S. Bank in my life. Why should I pay this? Or, or it comes from a lawyer or something that you know just looks like it even could be a, a solicitation or spam. Um, you can write back and say, prove to me that I owe this debt. Uh, it can be in very simple language. It doesn't have to be any kind of lawyer language. You don't even have to call it debt. You know, just say, I got this letter and I don't know what it is. And, and you know, are you sure I owe it? Or how much do I owe? Or what started this debt? And the company is then, the creditor is then obligated to give you some proof. Here's the original contract you signed, whether it was a credit card agreement or that couch purchase. Here's your payment history. And here's the agreement where, you know, the furniture store transferred it to U.S. Bank or that Walmart Visa card went to U.S. Bank, something like that. So asking for that proof is, is always a good step. And if the company fails to provide it, that might give you an avenue to defend yourself against a, a collection action eventually. Um, so that's one step. You always have the right to, to request that proof, proof that you owe the debt. And then you also have the right to say, don't call me at this number. Don't call me at all. It doesn't necessarily mean you don't owe the money, but you don't want to be harassed about it. They could still end up suing you for it. Uh, but if you've told them, you know, prove the debt to me and you've said, don't contact me, and, and then they come after you, that might give you additional ways to, to help negotiate that debt, whether through a counterclaim or, um, or a pre-suit type of negotiation. So I think there's a lot, of, a lot of gold right there, right? Which is not only do I owe the money, but you're the person that I owe it to. Because as you noted, um, debt can get bought and sold as, as, an, as an asset. And, and all too often, sometimes these companies that buy them don't keep very good records. And that creates problems for, for people in those situations. Um, you, you also have the right to dispute uh, something with your credit, with just the credit bureau, even if you're not if they won't provide you that proof and you've got a ding on your credit for it. Um, do you know anything about that process and can you kind of walk us briefly through it? Yes. So you have the right to dispute any kind of debt that's being reported on your credit report. That'd be the Experian, TransUnion or Equifax. Anything that's on that credit report needs to be uh, accurate and needs to be something you owe. And so you can write to any of those three major credit reporting agencies and you can say, you know, this I've never owed to U.S. Bank. You know, I, I don't know who this entity is or I thought I paid that. Or, you know, if it's medical debt, there's actually some uh, current law being proposed to say that medical debt shouldn't go on your credit report. It's not a fair measure of your credit worthiness because you didn't plan to get sick. It's not a debt you agreed to take on and then couldn't repay. You didn't know this was coming. So uh, right now, the law is that if it's under $500 and it's medical debt, it shouldn't be on your credit report. And, and there's currently some movement in the, the federal government to change those regulations and say any medical debt shouldn't be reported. But uh, for example, if it's a medical bill that you thought the insurance was going to pay, you know, you might have a dispute there. So the, the process is to write to the credit reporting agency specifically outlining the dispute. And then the credit reporting agency has a duty to reinvestigate that reporting to make sure that it's accurate. If the credit reporting agency fails to properly investigate your claim, you could have a claim against the credit reporting agency as well as what's called the furnisher, the company who provided the information to the credit reporting agency. Wow. And and both of those then would be claims that you could bring and in and, and, and the right circumstance and receive money from either the, the furnisher, you called them, right? The person that's telling the credit card company or the credit card bureau that you owe them money and the credit card bureau as well for falsely reporting information, depending upon 
a number of facts, right? It always depends because we're lawyers and the facts always That's matter. Right. Um, but in, in the right set of facts, you could actually go from owing someone $2,000 to them actually owing you money and having to pay for your attorney. That's exactly right. And the first step, you know, you might know something's on your credit report because you ap applied for some kind of financing and got a notice back that said, we denied you for this thing being on your credit. But you have the right to proactively pull your credit reports. There's a website called annualcreditreport.com. Annual means you get one free credit report each year from each of the three companies. It's not going to give you your credit score, but it will give you a complete listing of whatever appears on your credit report. So that's the place to go look. You have to put in some uh, identifying information, your name, address, social security number, date of birth. And then the, the website quizzes you to make sure it's actually you. So it'll give you these trick questions to say, which of these streets is one you've lived on? It'll have... <laughs> Yeah, some random streets, and and then it always ends with or none of the above. And so then you start getting you know a little trip. You're like, did I ever live on an Elm Street, or is it really none of the above? <laughs> you have to answer a few screener questions to make sure it's really you, and then you'll get a printout of your your credit report. So um, that's where we suggest people start, and then you know you look through and say, oh, I've never owed this debt, or I didn't even know this was on there. I do owe it, and I need to go take care of it to increase my credit score. So there's there's reasons to do it, even if you're not experiencing debt collection harassment. So let's talk about that. Let's say I, I, I find something, um, they're like, I owe them $10. You're like, you know what? I did forget to pay that. I, I was supposed to send them money. So I send off a check for $10. What's their obligation then as it comes to that reporting? And what's my credit uh, report going to look like once I've cleaned that up? Yeah, if, if you go and satisfy that debt, the, the person who had been reporting the delinquency needs to go in and say, this has been satisfied, this has been paid in full, and then you should see an increase. Credit scores are very hard to predict. There's a, an algorithm like we kind of hear about with different social media or, or other sites. So you can't say for sure you pay a debt and your credit score goes up because sometimes it says, oh, the number of open accounts or available credit is a good thing. You know, there's all these different things that get factored into what creates a credit score. You might think somebody who owes no debt has perfect credit, but they don't have any credit. It's it's not, it's a little counterintuitive. Uh, so I can't say for sure how quickly you should see your score change or anything like that, uh, but at least it'll be an accurate credit report if you've taken care of that debt and if the company has done what they should to, to update that report. So we've talked about consumer uh, law, we've talked about credit cards, we've talked about cars, furniture, these other things that in the law we call secure debt. Let's talk about one of the biggest secure debts that many people have, though, which is a, a debt that's against their home or real estate that they own in the form of a mortgage. Are those laws the same laws as it comes to enforcing debt, or are there different laws for uh, mortgage work? Um, there are some laws specific to mortgages. So there are laws that govern the, the servicing of mortgage loans, um, but many of the same laws will also apply. The way those debts are collected can also be the same, or maybe it'll be in a different part of the law because it's a mortgage, but you can still have many of the same protections we've talked about, uh, along with some additional protections. Because like you mentioned, that home, the four walls, the having a place to lay your head and, and have your family come home to is just one of the most critical rights we can protect for people. So when we talk about that, then your mortgage company can't call and harass you and say, hey, don't pay me. So so that would certainly be one of the laws that would be there. You can still tell your mortgage company, don't call me or don't call me at these hours. All of those rights still apply, but then there's an even higher bar when it comes to foreclosure law. Um, what are some of the things that make that bar higher for a bank? So there are two different sorts of processes, I'll say. 
One is what the banks call loss mitigation. And so it really is a term that comes from the bank's perspective. If, if they're going to stand to uh, lose out on this loan, how can they mitigate that loss by getting you to actually pay more? But it's what most commonly looks like a loan modification for a borrower. So if you have fallen behind on your mortgage payment, most mortgage companies and banks have options to help you get back on track. And so there are laws that govern that process, depending on the type of mortgage loan you have and whether it's guaranteed by the federal government, it might be a requirement that you're offered certain things. If it's a, a credit union or a smaller mortgage servicer, those might not be guarantees in the law, but most banks and, and servicers still do have programs available to help. So there are rights that govern that sort of assistance process. If that assistance process doesn't work out or, or perhaps the law is not followed in that way, there are also protections around foreclosure, which is the process where the mortgage company would actually come and uh, essentially try to repossess the home, right? Take, take ownership of the home from you for non-payment. And there are additional protections in the law in that process as well. Our thanks to Sarah Brown for joining us for this edition of What's the Law Say? The next edition of What's the Law Say will dig deep into foreclosure law, including outlining your rights, consumer protections, and the law as it relates to foreclosure. More information on this topic is available at mountainstatejustice.org or on Legal Aid of West Virginia's website at legalaidwv.org. Thank you for joining us for this presentation of What's the Law Say, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.